welcome back to You Know What I've Been Wondering. I'm Sarah. I'm Jane. How are you doing, Jane? <laughs> I'm okay. I feel like I'm sweating always. I'm packing up my apartment at the moment because I'm about to move. And I feel like I'm either doing something or I'm feeling guilty because I'm not doing something. So I'm always, Ooh, you know, big in mood, a state of big sweat. Mood. So, yeah. Yeah. How about you, Sarah? Um, I am not great. I'm fine. I, I, I don't want to say like I'm not great because then I get like texts and calls. How dare people call me? Um, <laughs> of people being like, what's wrong? And it's like the thing that's frustrating is that I'm not great, but nothing's wrong. You know, I'm just like stressed mm. and I have a lot of work to do and there's nothing going yeah. poorly. There's just a lot going on. Like everything, yeah. everything is just a lot. Like I, there's just too much of everything. Yeah, that's fair. So, but I had a lovely weekend last weekend. My roommates and I went to Philly and I went to the zoo and <laughs> I went to the Franklin Institute and it was beautiful and I loved it. Uh, I, had a, I had a great time and that was a highlight. That was a highlight. And I'm seeing Kelsey this weekend for like a, a 20 minutes yeah. maybe uh <laughs> so that's good um so you know I'm, I'm I'm okay I'm just it's just it's just too much sometimes it's just too much Sean Mendez has this one song that goes sometimes it all gets a little too much I always say that like currently I cannot stand him just because right. he's like he just seems like he's so annoying like not because I think he's like out there like doing bad things or like being mean or like doing harmful things he's just like oh my god come on guy like all right but <laughs> I used to be obsessed with him and I loved his previous albums um and I I <laughs> feel like it was a like a red flag that I should have listened to that he has this one song that I listen to all the time that I really like that's called don't be a fool and it's called don't be a fool and the like premise of it is like you shouldn't fall for me because I'm like an untrustworthy person to fall in love with and I and I was like it's so silly that Sean wrote this song because like <laughs> I would never not be in love with him like he's so trustworthy and now I'm like <laughs> now I'm like god you're annoying <laughs> No, truly, I find anyone who's not BTS annoying. That's a lie. That's a lie. I'm also obsessed with TXT and in Hyphen, which is Big Hit's other Korean pop band. But I'm not in love with TXT and in Hyphen. Like, they're my children. I got, and I'm in love with BTS. So mm -hmm. literally, when any other male pop star does anything, I'm like, shut up. But if, like, Jungkook did it, I'd be so endeared, you know? It's a fine light. No, but Shawn Mendes is extremely annoying. He just gives off that, like, <laughs> I'm a white boy. I've got issues, like energy you know and I'm like shut up. <laughs> shut up you're super rich and you're dating Camila Cabello like please please <laughs> anyway do you want to get started I don't remember sure. what I asked you uh well you asked me um about secretaries and a secretary is a woman or man or person who works I'm kidding you asked me about secretary yet mm. and I thought you would call me out on that <laughs> you just like did something completely different yeah i thought it would be funny <laughs> okay secretariat known by his friends as big red was a championed a champion american thoroughbred racehorse who is the ninth winner of the american triple crown 
<laughs> on Wikipedia, they listed him as Sex Stallion. And I thought that was uh, just a, a funny little thing to know. Just reading like he's a boy horse. Like just a side note, like <laughs> that's what his that's what his Tinder profile would say. Yeah. Um <laughs> he was technically like the transaction of his breeding was done by this guy named um Christopher Chenery, but really the woman who is credited with his birth and his success and raising him and being an amazing owner is penny chenery his wife she is the diane lane character from the movie oh okay yeah so his sire because they talk about racehorses like they're vampires um his sire is his father biological father and his name was bold ruler and he was the leading sire in North America from 1963 to 1969. And then not for a couple of years, but then again in 1973. So what the events right. of 1969, I don't know, that year just threw 19- things off for him. Yeah, but he it, came back. <laughs> well, 1969 threw us all off, I would say so. Yeah. <laughs> you Even know, though those who were not born yet. Bold Ruler was owned by this family called the Phipps family. And... Bold Ruler had won the Preakness Stakes, and he was horse of the he won the Horse of the Year honors in 1957, as well as the American Champion Sprint Horse honors in 1958. Before he was retired to stud, which is very often the case after horses are done racing, mm-hmm. they're used for breeding, and the male horse is the stud, and the female horse is the mare. Right. Talking strictly of sex, we don't know how they identify, but the Phipps family owned most of the mares with whom what's his name again bold ruler was being bred <laughs> and <laughs> every now and then they would sell a few sell a few foals at auction and typically if you were the owner of a stud who was in demand for breeding uh, you would charge a fee which was called a stud fee um, to have people like bring their mares to you and have them get pregnant by your stud but the meadows farm slash stud slash i've seen i saw it referred to a different thing but the company is called meadows stud was specifically looking to diversify the you know gene pool in its stables and uh it was being run at that point by penny chenery and she was like really trying to look for a way to bring in more money so she um started doing this arrangement, which is called a full sharing arrangement. And essentially it's when someone, well, in this case, it's when someone wanted to breed with bold ruler, they would arrange for one of two things to happen. They would send two mares to have meetings with bold ruler over the course of a year so that both mares would get pregnant. And then bold rulers owners would get one and the mares. So there'd be two foals, two baby horses. And then the, owners of the stud would get one and the owners of the mare would get one okay. or they would send one mare twice like they'd send her for a year have her have one baby and then do it again the next year have her have a second one and then they would divide, decide who would get which full uh, okay. now in this case christopher chenery made a deal where he would send two of his mares well, again it's christopher chenery but really like when i say christopher chenery i mean penny chenery he was okay. just like her husband who was like doing the financials. 
he would send two of his mares one uh, one year and two different mares the second year. Although, like in this case, one of the mares went both years. The next year, um, they they would do a coin toss uh, at some point in between, and whoever won the coin toss would get first pick of the foals born the first year, and whoever lost the coin toss would get first pick of the foals born the second year. Uh, so in 1968, um, the Chenneries sent two mares to be bred with Bold Ruler, and their names were Something Royal and Hasty Matilda. <laughs> I love her. I don't. I love Hasty Matilda. I, I really Hasty wanted her Matilda. to be the hero of this story, but she's just kind of a side character, and I'm like, uh, okay. <laughs> center women. <laughs> yeah, center Hasty Matilda. Um, well, oh, something royal God. is also a woman, so it was those two ladies. And then in the following year, he sent, so he once again sent something royal, and he also sent a horse named Cicada. In 1968, both horses got pregnant and then gave birth the following year. Hasty Matilda had a colt, and something royal had a filly. In 1969, something royal got pregnant again, but Cicada, the other horse that came with her, did not. Aww. So, I know. So, this would put them in kind of a precarious situation and whoever won the coin toss would actually get only one foal instead of two, instead of two, because if you won the coin toss, that meant you would get your pick of the two foals the first year. And then the second year, the other person would get their pick, but because the second year there was only one horse to choose from, they would just automatically get it. Right. So you didn't want to win the coin toss. You wanted to lose. Ogden Phipps won the coin toss and he chose something Royals weanling filly that was born the first year. Okay. And so Chenery by default got hasty Matilda's colt and the soon to be born baby of something Royal who turned out to be secretariat. Uh, the there famous was. horsey we're talking about. Yeah. Wow. I got a whole family line here. I know. <laughs> I can tell you, the top of Wikipedia will tell you um, his sire was bold ruler. His dam, which is the horse word for mother, D-A-M, um, mm. is something royal. His grandsire <laughs> was a horse named Nazrula. And his damshire was a horse named Prince Aquilo, which just like damshire is maternal grandfather. But there were like other big horses in the lineage there mm. that I'm not even listening. So on March 30th, 1970, at 1210 a.m. at the Meadow Stud in Caroline County, Virginia, Something Royal gave birth to a bright red chestnut colt with three white socks and a narrow stripe for a star. The star is the, you probably know this, but is the star, it, it's the thing in the middle of their like head. Sometimes mm -hmm. when horses have like a spot on their forehead. Yeah. yeah. Following. Yeah, he had a little stripe. He first stood up when he was 45 minutes old, and he nursed 30 minutes later. Howard Gentry, the manager of Meadow Stud, was there, and he said, he was a very well-made foal. He was as perfect a foal that I ever delivered. They called him Big Red, and that's what, like, people, mm -hmm. you know, who worked with him closely called him, but he didn't have an official name for a little bit. They said, uh, the people who knew him said that he was, like, the leader amongst the other foals, and he was, like, comfortable around them and was like you know Robert Gentry who also worked on the farm said um to us he was big red and he had a personality he was a clown and he was always cutting it up always into some devilment when Penny Chenery first saw him she brought a notebook to record her observations and all she wrote was 
Wow! Exclamation point. <laughs> an wow. impressive, an impressive little baby horse. A bunch of people, um, starting with the jockey club, were submitting a bunch of ideas for his name, but the Meadow Studs secretary, Elizabeth Ham, who had previously held the position of Secretariat of the League of Nations, which is now the I'm blanking on the word for it. United UN? Nations. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I like League better, personally. The I mean, League of Nations. But it's okay. That's all right. Yeah. I forgive them. Um, so she pitched Secretariat as an homage to that like position she used to hold, and it was chosen. So he was named Secretariat. He grew up to be a massive horse. Very powerful. Yes. He was, <laughs> yeah. He was six and a half feet tall when he was fully grown, and he had a chest so large that he needed a custom girth to be made for him. Oh, he was noted to have been very to have very large, powerful muscles, especially in his hindquarters. Which a lot of these descriptions, I'm like, you all know this is a horse, right? You're describing this with very sexy words, <laughs> <laughs> like his muscular hindquarters and his wide girth. How else would you describe him? Would you be know. like, oh, he looks like a horse? <laughs> <laughs> Can't say that. Yeah. Many believed him to be a perfect horse with flawless bone structure, balance, and stride biodynamics. So See, this the, horse was a it machine. Does, it does kind of seem like the writer has a crush on the yeah. horse. <laughs> His stride was measured at 24 feet, 11 inches, which is like, what? He's jumping. You, yeah, it's crazy. So one farmhand said of him, you want to know who Secretariat is in human terms? Just imagine the greatest athlete in the world. The greatest. Now make him six foot three, the perfect height, making him real intelligent and kind. And on top of that, make him the best looking guy ever to come down to Pike. He was all those things as a horse. So do Great. you remember a couple of years ago, there was that horse that everyone was like, it's such a handsome horse. I feel like it was, the, that was the situation. <laughs> yep. <laughs> that like black horse with the big long yeah. curly mane. Oh, yeah. Stunning. Gorgeous. I'm sure the horse is still alive. Probably. Yeah. Still. Yeah. He is. Um, he raced in the racing colors of Meadows stables, which were blue and white checkers. He wore a blinker hood to help him focus and to keep him from, and to keep him running straight as he had a tendency to run towards the rails. He had Love a reputation that. as a kind horse who was likable and was not bothered by large crowds or other horses bumping up against him. He did need to be trained a bit at first. Uh, he was so large that his exercise riders observed that he had all these muscles to go incredibly fast, but he didn't really want to. <laughs> he was just like, yeah, I'm so heavy. I want to sit right here. Um, right. But he, but he could go really fast, but only when he felt like it. Um, and he was getting frequently outpaced by his peers. One of them, one of his exercise riders said he was a big fat sucker. I mean, he was a, I mean, he was big. And I'm like, we don't like shame this horse who you just said was perfect five minutes ago. But they um, want horses to be big. It's good that he's yeah, big. Yeah. He wasn't in a hurry to do nothing. He took his time. The quality was there, but he didn't show it until he wanted to, which is fair. At the time, though, the uh, his other exercise rider said that on his first ride of Secretariat, it was like having the big having this big red machine under me. And from the very first day, I knew he had a power of strength like that I had never felt before. Oh. So he was a machine of a horse. Mm -hmm. He went to train with this man named Lucien Lauren, 
at his stables and his owners received regular updates on his progress. And he officially started racing in 1972. In his, in his first big race, a different horse cut out in front of the pack Uh and caused a big like chain reaction that resulted in Secretariat getting bumped really hard. And the jockey said that if he wasn't as strong as he was, then he definitely would have fallen over. Mm. But he didn't. He was able to recover and rejoin the race. And if uh, there was a little bit of traffic around one stretch of it towards the end, but he was able to move up from 10th place to 4th place. And he was only beaten by one and a quarter lengths. So that does feel like a movie beginning of like, oh, he almost lost. And like, oh, but he came in fourth. Still got a ways to go. (laughs) Yeah. Um, As I said in the beginning, he was a champion thoroughbred racehorse who was the ninth winner of the American Triple Crown. In 1974, he was inducted into the National Museum of Racing Hall of Fame. At the museum in Saratoga Springs, New York, there is a life-size statue of him. In 1994, he was listed as number 17 in their list of the 40 greatest 40 greatest sports figures of the past 40 years. <laughs> Big mood. I, <laughs> I would do that. 18. Like, <laughs> like, who is one ahead of you? A horse. <laughs> um, I would do that, but it would all be like it would all be like horses and like what are other animals that we put into sports? Like the the hounds and fox racing and like fox hunting, like. <laughs> Uh, it's the greatest, the greatest athlete of our time. <laughs> it's Airbud. Like, <laughs> well, you'll love this next fact as well. In 1999, ESPN listed him 35th of the 100 greatest North American athletes of the 20th century. <laughs> he, he was the highest-ranking non-human on the list, with two other horses, mm. Man o' War and Citation, who were 84th and 97th. I feel bad for whoever was 98th, 99th, and 100th. <laughs> like, yeah, I was, I was in the top 100. Uh, a horse, three separate horses beat me, but I was on the list. I was yeah. on the list. It's an honor just to be acknowledged. <laughs> <laughs> he was an amazing athlete, but he also gained this sort of massive fame and name mm-hmm. recognition. Mm-hmm. His birthplace is listed on the National Register of Historic Places. 263 roads in the United States are named after him, which is more than any other athlete in American history. Really? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) That's hilarious. Mm -hmm. I really love that. Yeah. In 2010, his owners, who owe a large portion of their success to him, named the Secretariat Vox Populi Award after him. And Vox Populi... um, I'm not sure what language, I assume Latin. It means the voice of the people, and it's an award where racing fans vote for their favorite horse. Um, there is a Maker's Mark Secretariat Center in Kentucky where former racehorses are retrained now that they're retired to have a more relaxed life, and Aww. they're matched with new homes, which is so sweet. That is really sweet. In today's money, he earned over $7.7 million in oh winnings. God. And in stud fees. And after he was retiring, when he was a stud horse, his stud fee was $70,000. Oh Very God. expensive boy. That's, to this day. That's an expensive hookup right there. That's <laughs> 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 what we're talking now, about. <laughs> I really didn't expect to know as much as I do about horse breeding now. 
<laughs> you know I, I know about it. Yeah, yeah, you know about it. Yeah. To this day, he holds the record for the fastest time in the Kentucky Derby. Mm-hmm. All of his Triple Crown wins were record-holding times. Um, one of them was one minute and 59.4 seconds. One was one minute, 53 seconds. And his Belmont race, which was two minutes and 24 seconds, was his final race. And many consider it his greatest as he won by an incredible 31 lengths. Oh, my God. I know. And it's also the fastest 1.5 mile time on a, that a horse has run on dirt in history. That's unbelievable. So over the course of his career, he participated in 21 like big career races and he won 16 of them and he came in second or third for the other four of the five that he didn't win so 20 out of 21 times he was getting he got a medal yeah he was top three majority of the time he won as I said while he was owned by the Chenery couple by Christopher and Penny Chenery. His real owner is considered to be Penny Chenery. Her father owned the meadow stud where he was bred and she took it over from him when he passed away and ran it successfully. Um, despite the fact that, um, when she was taking over, it was, there was a lot of financial troubles and ultimately like there were a lot of estate taxes left over from her father that she had to pay. Mm -hmm. And, um, because of that, she had to cut secretariat's career short uh, he only raced for three years, but she is really credited as one of the few really successful women in horse racing. Mm-hmm. Secretariat is, he, the rest of these are just really fun facts about him. Secretariat is two and a half times larger than the average horse. The yeah, average horse ever? I think like if you take all the horses in the world, take their average size and yeah, then multiply that by 2.5. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know what average means. <laughs> I'm trying to think, I, I'm trying to think about like when I rode horses, when I rode horses, I rode, I rode one that I rode one that was only one hand tall enough to be considered a horse and not a pony. So he Aww. was short, but then the other horse I rode most often after him was above average. He was really tall. His name was Sundance. He was an Appaloosa and he was beautiful. <laughs> well, Appaloosa's kind of come into this <laughs> because- oh. Um, <laughs> when he retired and he became a stud before they wanted to breed him with other like thoroughbred horses, mm-hmm. they wanted to test his fertility and make sure he was able to father children. So they bred him with three non-thoroughbred Appaloosa horses just to see. Oh, interesting. That is a fun yeah. fact. And he had a couple of foals with them. My um, uncle has horses who I know are all, one of them at least is like a very average size. So I'm trying to imagine 2.5 times his size yeah it's huge i i don't know if it's all necessarily in height i think a lot of it is width and muscle mass mm, that makes sense yeah um he went on to sire 663 foals what <laughs> i know 340 that is, that is not a statistic i was prepared for secretary Three. fucks he really did <laughs> 341 of them went on to be winning racehorses and 54 of them were like champion winners. Um, I'm wait, that's just how many foals he, he sired. That doesn't include the number of fillies. No foals are both. Foals are are boys. Fillies are girls. Okay. Okay. 
Okay. okay. Biologically. I was like, <laughs> well, the thing is, like, I thought that was an absurdly large number. And then at the end of my research, I was kind of like perusing through the Seabiscuit story just to like see if there's anything <laughs> fun there to include. And I was reading this one article that was like 10 facts about Seabiscuit. And one of them was Seabiscuit only sired 108 foals. And I was like, only? <laughs> something, we can, something we can only say about horses, truly. No, can you imagine how many babies an average rabbit has in its lifetime? We should oh find that out. <laughs> so many. Secretariat's most successful offspring include General Assembly, Lady Secret. Oh, I've heard of General Assembly. Mm, have you heard of Lady Secret? No, but I do mm. love Lady Secret. Yeah. Risen Star. Kingston Rule and Tinner's Way are his offspring that have like won the most trophies. Mm-hmm. Um, it was mentioned that Seabiscuit only sired 108 foals because he only lived to the age of 14, um, whereas Secretariat lived to 19. And it was, it was <laughs> at the age of 19, it was a very difficult decision was made to euthanize him. He had developed this condition called laminitis, which You've ridden horses, maybe you've heard of it, but it's a condition that horses and mules and donkeys can, uh, pony, like that type of animal can develop in which the tissue that bonds their hoofs to their pedal bones is, I, I don't know if it deteriorates, or, but somehow it's harmed and it's affected and it's very painful and seriously affects a horse's quality of life. And several people who worked with Secretariat said that he was, really not himself and they could tell he was really suffering and he was really in pain so he was they the decision was made to you know take him out of his suffering um and people who are you know big fans of secretariat um sort of made him now like the face of this movement amongst racing crowds to bring attention to this disease and mm-hmm. um help people be on the look for it and yeah. you know looking for solutions Typically, when horses are buried, um, since their bodies are so big, they only bury the head, the heart, and the hooves, which I did not know before. I saw at the Franklin Institute, I saw a diagram of a horse's heart. They're very large. Mm. Well, Secretariat's heart was 21 (laughs) to 22 pounds. And it was, I know, which is also two and a half times larger than the (laughs) The average horse's horse's heart. heart. Oh my God. That's like the size of a whale's heart, (laughs) (laughs) which I only know because I was literally just at the Franklin Institute and they have like a whole thing about hearts there. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't just walk around knowing how large a whale's heart is, but there was like a horse's heart next to a whale's heart. And I would say that was about twice as big. So I'm imagining (laughs) that's what Secretariat's heart looked like. What the hell? How is this man real? He's not a man. How is this horse? How is this freaking huge? Freaking huge. I want to go to the museum and stand next to a statue and be enamored. (laughs) The picture doesn't make it look like it's that big because it's like surrounded by bushes and it's like in the center of a fountain or something. And you're like, "Uh uh-huh, a statue. Mm -hmm. And they're like, it's life-size. And I'm like, this must, this thing must be big. It must be big. Must be huge. Yep. Um, but Secretariat, um, because he was such an honored horse, um, was given the honor of his entire body being buried. Mm. He is buried at Claiborne Farms in Paris, Kentucky. And 
that is a lot of my stuff on Seabiscuit. If you want to look up all of the races that he won, like there's so many. <laughs> I could sit Love here and that. list statistics and I was like, we're not a sports podcast. Go and look at the detail. He was we just really not. good. <laughs> she is a sports camp director though. <laughs> <laughs> me rolling up day one with some horse racing facts being like this is this is my niche sports interest I don't know how to help you uh I can't tell you how to play soccer but did you yeah. know that secretary it was 2.5 times the average horse size he was just a big strong boy a big, um strong boy which it's funny that he's such a success like I thought when I was reading that I was like oh I bet people saw him as like this like like the opposite of an underdog, mm-hmm. like oh that guy the win, wins every time and beats all. But really, maybe it's because his career was so short; it was only three seasons. Yeah. Um, and his trainer said um, that he wished that he could continue racing after that because mm-hmm. he just loved to run and he was physically fine at the time. So there I'm was imagining no... them being like putting secretariat like in therapy, being like, "I'm sorry." You can't run anymore. No, no, Talk no, no. About no. It. You don't That's need like to what run. the plot of Bojack Horseman is. Bojack, <laughs> you don't need to run. Have you watched Bojack Horseman? No, you haven't. Um, a few episodes. Well, the, a later season plot is that Bojack wants to star in the movie about Secretariat, but it's like a biography because they're all <laughs> they're all animals. Yeah. <laughs> so he he like pl- he plays Secretariat, and it's like a Secretariat's like in therapy, and he's like an mm-hmm. alcoholic. <laughs> stop racing i love bojack horseman it's brilliant (laughs) i scrolled up a little bit to find a different fact and (laughs) i thought i was looking at the the last page but i was really looking at the first page and the final bullet point on the first page is chenery by default got hasty matilda's cult (laughs) oh we're talking about hasty matilda again (laughs) love her i love her well thank you for all that um well, I have three final little things to say. Oh, great. And great. that was just that I did a little, I <laughs> wanted to bring up Seabiscuit's short. I was going to ask shortly. about Seabiscuit. Well, <laughs> I will say when you asked me about it, you mentioned that Seabiscuit was like in the 90s. We got that way wrong. He was oh. during the Depression. <laughs> oh, Seabiscuit was first. <laughs> yeah, he came way before. He was. Um, he won the 1937 Triple Crown, and oh. he is so famous because he was like a symbol of hope during the Great Depression. Mm-hmm. He was a smaller horse who was very unsuccessful early on in his career, but then... Oh, so like Racing be- Stripes. You know Racing Stripes? The movie about the zebra that wants to be a racehorse with Hayden yes. Pettitier? Yeah. <laughs> and Frankie Muniz or something. <laughs> He's the zebra! <laughs> Yeah, I he love was like the movie. underdog, and he was like yeah. a symbol of hope during the depression. So that's his whole deal. Oh, see this, <laughs> yeah. not Frankie yes. Muniz. Yes. Not Frankie. <laughs> Although there is a decom in which Frankie Muniz um is a kid who does uh like downhill racing, like in homemade derby carts or something, and it's called Miracle in Lane Two. And, <laughs> <laughs> and so. <laughs> If there's one thing Jane is always good for, it's referencing a decom that nobody knows. That one was really weird, though. He plays this kid who's in a wheelchair, and he has several dream sequences where he, like, talks to God. <laughs> and <he> uh, <laughs> that's horrific. And love, he's like, hey, love God. Love Big Fat Liar, though. But yeah, those are my horsey facts. 
horsies. (laughs) (laughs) Babe, are you okay? You didn't say horses when we drove past that field of horses. (laughs) So today um, for the middle segment, I would like to talk about a New York Times article that was published today um, about this man uh, who was a French engineer who said that he has cracked the Zodiac cipher. Oh, like the Zodiac Killer Cipher. Yeah, like the Zodiac <gasps> Killer Cipher. And people are upset. Oh, no. Is it something really stupid? I don't know. I don't know why that they're upset. I'm going to be honest with you. I'm going to cold read this right oh. here. Because <laughs> I, I, wanted to, I wanted to be shocked. So um, this, this story is coming from Angontul, France. I don't know if I'm saying that correctly. I'm probably saying it very poorly. Um, but the man who believes he has cracked the cipher is named Faisal Zeroui. Zeroui. It's Zeroui. Like O-U-I. Did you know, I'm sorry, this is a tie tangent, but I recently saw an ad on TikTok for what I thought was called Romwe, but it's the, the like voiceover pronounced person rhymed it with like, it's going to be a good day because I'm going to order from Romwe. No. Yeah. And I was like, whoa. <laughs> everything, everything I've thought is a lie. <laughs> well, this man's name is Zero E, and he is a French Moroccan business consultant. Um, and in December of 2020, he stumbled across an article in a French magazine that stated no one had ever solved the two ciphers attributed to the Zodiac Killer. Um, who terrorized, if you don't know, he terrorized the San Francisco Bay Area in the 1960s and 70s. And I guess he had never heard of the Zodiac Killer before because he was from France and it's probably not as big a story there um, as it is in America. Like he read this article that was like, you know, nobody's ever solved these ciphers. And he was like, why not? I will do it. Um, This man has done some impressive things in his life. He is, um, in 2018, he completed an Ironman race, which if you don't know, or is a very vigorous triathlon. Um, he's a 3D, he's been doing 3D animations as he was a teenager. He developed virtual reality software. So he's a, he's an impressive fella. Um, but these ciphers um, are infamously baffling. Mm-hmm. Um, car- cryptographers, law enforcement agents, and amateur sleuths alike have all obsessed over um, solving the cipher and thinking that it is the key to identifying the Zodiac Killer. Um, and this has been going on for half a century at this point. Um, we've been searching for the Zodiac Killer since the 1960s and 70s, um, which at this point it is likely that the Zodiac Killer is no longer alive or it would be a similar situation with James D'Angelo where he is a very old person, um, yeah. which also makes things a little bit more difficult. There have been numerous people who have claimed to figure out the mystery through various techniques over the decades, but all of their theories have been rebuked and none of the proposed solutions have been proven to be the actual, like the actual answer. Mm -hmm. Zero E claims that it only took him two weeks to crack the two ciphers that he was looking at. Um, One of which included the revelation of the Zodiac Killer's identity by using an encryption key that came out only in December and new creative code cracking techniques. Um, And then he began posting on the internet, (laughs) on forums, claiming that he had cracked the code, um, including on the Zodiac Killer, Unsolved and Unforgotten, um, which is host to tens of thousands of amateur sleuths tracking the 
two ciphers. And the two ciphers that he claims to have decoded are known as Z32 and Z13, which if you don't know where the ciphers came from, they come from letters that were sent to the San Francisco police and um, San Francisco, um, I forget the name of their newspaper, but it was- Chronicle? The Chronicle, thank you, Jane. Mm -hmm. So one of his posts was almost immediately deleted by a moderator. Um, and other people immediately began denouncing his theory and questioning how he possibly could have solved it um, in such a short amount of time. Someone commented, um, I don't believe it for a second when he says that it took two weeks to crack the Z32 and an hour for the Z13. I think that sums it up pretty well. One of the issues that um, journalists have brought up and other uh, people who have been really following the Zodiac case is that they think his error in claiming um, that he solved it um, came from kind of presenting it as I did it game over but one of the reasons that the Zodiac case has remained so high profile is because like people there's this theory that people don't really want it to be game over that like mm -hmm. there will oh, like there's something satisfying there's something like there, the, the game of it all is very appealing to so many people that like it will kind of be impossible to ever convince them that it really is over because of the draw these ciphers have built in society um the fbi and the san francisco police department to whom zero we sent his findings have declined to comment on whether or not he has actually solved the code zero a little bit more about zero zero we um is from france he studied at the eco polytechnique and the uh hec paris which is the country's top engineering and business school and he started code solving as a fun activity during the coronavirus lockdown um at the time that he began solving the case he knew nothing about the zodiac killer who is suspected of five murders um but boasted of 37 killings in his cipher um, and the killer's hallmark was a series of four ciphers using letters of the alphabet and symbols that he sent to media outlets between July 1969 and April 1970 um, with warnings and um, a promise that were the ciphers solved, they would reveal his identity. Um, the first cipher was solved soon after, after it was sent in 1969. The magazine article that Zero We read in December said the FBI had acknowledged a team of three hobbyist cryptologists that had solved the second cipher that was sent, which comprised of only 340 characters, 51 years later. So they say the second cipher was solved in um, early 2020 with a code-breaking mm -hmm. program that, went, that ran through 350,000 possible solutions before finding the encryption key. But that second cipher proved no clues about the killer's identity. So that left um, the two unsolved codes one 32 characters long and one 13 characters long. It is assumed, oh, sorry, the 13 character cipher is preceded by the words, my name is blank, which is why Z13 is the most famous and um, the most eagerly uh, mm -hmm. sought to be solved because they think it will reveal his 13 character name. And that's why it's called Z32 and Z13 because that's how many characters are, are missing and need to be decoded. Um, there are many people who believe that the ciphers are unsolvable because the they have too few characters to determine the encryption key. The encryption key is not does not seem to be um, maintained across all four ciphers. They're, each one has its own key. Um, there are also an uh, impossibly 
large number of um, possible solutions given that the characters are only 13 letters or is only thir that the that the cipher is only 13 characters um, there's almost infinite possibilities um, so it would be nearly impossible to verify any of them as true zero week claims that um, he had been inspired by the code crackers who had solved the 340 character cipher um, in December of 2020. So it took 51 years to crack Cypher 2. Zero Wee was like, I got this. I'm going to use the same key that the people who solved uh, Z340 used um, to try to uh, and apply it to the 32 character Cypher and then to the 13 character Cypher. Now this seems sort of overly simple to just be like, yep, same key. Um, and that produced a sequence. And when he did that, he produced a sequence of random letters from the alphabet. And then he worked through a half dozen steps, including letter to number substitutions, identifying coordinates and numbers, and using a code breaking program he created to um, rejumble the letters into coherent words. Um, this is what took him two weeks to do. Um, and after two weeks of intense code cracking, he claims that Z32 says Labor Day find 45.069 North, 58.719 West. Um, the message referred to coordinates based on Earth's magnetic field, not the more familiar geographic sequences. Um, that location is a school near South Lake Tahoe, um, which is a city in California referred to in another postcard that is believed to have been sent by the Zodiac Killer in 1971. So Zero Wee, knowing that this the coordinates pointed to a place associated with the Zodiac Killer, assumed that he had solved the cipher and then turned to Z13. Um, and he used the same encryption key and various cipher cracking techniques. Um, after about an hour, Zero Wee said he came up with K-A-Y-R as the last name, um, which resembles the last name of Lawrence K, who was a salesman and career criminal living in South Lake Tahoe, who had been a suspect in the Zodiac Killer case in the 1960s oh. and 70s. Um, but Mr. K, who also sometimes used the pseudonym, pseudonym Kane, died in 2010. Um, Zero Wee believes that the um, misspelling of his name was a typo. Um, which, if you didn't know this about the Zodiac Killer, he had many typos and grammatical errors in his non-cipher letters. So some people have believed that the ciphers that are left are impossible to crack because they probably contain spelling errors mm. or grammatical errors. That has been a theory proposed before. Um, Zero Wee is convinced that the um, the location and the closeness to Mr. K's name are uh, too much to be a coincidence. Um, around 2 a.m. on January 3rd of 2021, Mr. Zero Wee posted a message entitled 713, my name is K, on a 50,000 member Reddit forum dedicated to the Zodiac Killer, and the message was deleted in 30 minutes. <gasps> Uh, the forum's moderator wrote that we've removed this as a general policy against C-13 solution posts. So lots of people don't believe that that is, that is true. 
David Orenchak, who is the leader of the team that cracked the 340 character cipher in December, said in a written exchange that he was skeptical of Mr. Zero We's solution, noting that, quote, hundreds of puzzles for Z13 and Z. 32 solutions already exist and it's practically impossible to determine if any of them are correct because of the brevity of the ciphers. Other had also, others had also arrived at Mr. K as a possible suspect through circumstantial evidence. So it's circumstantial, it's not proven. And if it was Mr. K, that investigation had happened and they discovered nothing, not saying that it wouldn't be him, but that mm -hmm. this evidence is not nearly enough to, to point to um, Lawrence K as him for sure. However, David Nachachi, Nakakash, I'm going to say David Nakakash, sure, and Emmanuel Tome, um, who are both cryptographers in France, uh, said that Mr. Zero Wee's code cracking methods were sound and should be considered by police investigators. Another cryptographer, Remy Giraud, also from the École Normale Supérieure, uh, disagreed. Uh, and said, Zero, we made arbitrary choices in his work. So disagreement on the French front. Um, Zero, we, <laughs> in retrospect, as of the publishing of this article, said he had, quote, arrived a bit like a bull in a china shop by opening challenging decades-old theories about the case on the online forums. Um, he received a lot of backlash online for claiming that he had solved the case. Um, Five months after he first proposed solutions online, Zero Wee has now disappeared from the Zodiac forums and he has stopped responding to comments saying he did not have the skills to play um, in the environment of the online forums any longer. Um, and that is the story of this man who believes he has cracked Zodiac cipher. Mm. I personally think that this is just like some French asshole who's like, I can do it, <laughs> I got it. And like the FBI is like, okay. <laughs> I don't know why I constantly am like, wow, someday I should just, I should just sit down and figure that out. Like, <laughs> <laughs> I think I can pull it together. I literally I just now I Googled the, the like codes to be like, let me look at them. And then I looked at them and I was like, oh no, those are hard. Okay. Like, <laughs> yeah, no, it's really, really hard. It's literally, people have been working on it for literally 50 years. So <laughs> probably but not. Like, let me really like sit down with it for let a bit. Really think about it. No, what it really seems like is that this guy was like, oh, so they did the 340 character cipher. Has anybody tried applying that key? Like, <laughs> like as if that probably wasn't the first thing they did. Like, I don't know. It just seems like some man being like, I'm smart enough for this. I got it. I got it. Like, <laughs> I'll take care of it. I'm on it. You know, mm -hmm. that's the vibe I'm getting. Anyway. Well, thanks. for That is cool though. Yeah. I love if it's codes like, and things. I love codes and things too. You know, I just love bringing the Zodiac killer into everyday conversation. Um, <laughs> just to remind people, you know, what's at stake. Um, I watched that documentary on Netflix a couple weeks ago about the the conspiracy theory involved in the Son of Sam case. Oh, I need to watch that still. I don't. I don't know how I feel about it. I think there's a, some compelling things, but I don't know if I'm on board with all of it. Mm -hmm. But I don't know. Watch it. It's really interesting. All right, I'll watch it. All right, are you ready to talk about sunscreen? <laughs> me sitting here with a red face. Yeah. Okay, yeah, I'm going to I'm going to kill you, Jane. <laughs> no, I I will say I went to the beach over the weekend with my parents and 
my parents were like rolling my their eyes at me because like literally like every like half hour I was like how much sunscreen and my mom only brought like I was like does anybody have sunscreen and she was like here use this and I started putting it on and then like a couple minutes later I looked at the bottle and realized that it wasn't sunscreen it was like tanning lotion with SPF like 15 at the uh-uh. most uh-uh. and I was like no 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 and I like got out my dad's like 50 and then I kept like put like every hour or so I kept like putting on more and they were like I think you're fine Jane just put on like a, you're I think you're okay and no like, you're not no, fine okay no, you, if, have you seen me like <laughs> if I've ne- if I've never given you a heart attack before because of information I've given you on this show this I'm going to I'm about to make you so paranoid Jane you just have no idea oh, God. I felt after this I was like great we're never going outside no you can go outside okay you just have to be prepared I actually one of my students said that to me the other week <laughs> when he saw my sunburn he was like Miss Bertelson what what's that red on your shoulder and I was like oh I got sunburned and he went oh well you're never allowed outside again. Yep. Yep. You're not. No, you can go outside, but you always have to have the correct protection, which I will describe to you here. I have to say that in the last couple of years, one of the things that I think has made me, um, that I've, I've really adulted well at is doing my, (laughs) is putting on sunscreen every day. Okay. This is important. So I'm about to tell you about all the dangers of the sun and how you can protect yourself. (laughs) Um, which is important because we are entering summer, but it is also important all of the time. Okay, so sunlight travels in rays, um, and many of those rays are composed of ultraviolet light or UV rays. UV rays throw off body processes that affect the appearance of your skin and, more importantly, the growth rate of your skin cells, okay? It is not about looks, people. It's about your skin cells dying inside of you, okay? Um, a sunburn is essentially short-term damage that UV radiation causes. So it literally burns away your skin cells. Um, but long-term damage from sun exposure might include wrinkles, skin damage, or even skin cancer, which, um, even though skin cancer is not the most deadly of the cancers, it is the most commonly diagnosed cancer in the U.S. Mm -hmm. Right? There are two types of rays that we should be concerned about. UVA rays and UVB rays. UVA rays are longer. All you need to know about that. They are just, they are physically longer. Excessive exposure to UVB rays can lead to skin damage on the epidermis, um, which is like a sunburn, um, is an example of that. Um, And the epidermis, if you don't know, is the outer layer of the skin. And UVB rays really only... Uh, affect the epidermis because they are shorter. But because UVA rays are longer, they penetrate deeper into the dermis or your skin. So they can do more permanent damage. And that is what we're really worried about. Um, Now, I'm not saying that UVB rays aren't bad. You should absolutely still protect yourself from UVB rays, but it's UVA rays that are going to um, affect you in the long term. The good news is that 95% of the radiation that penetrates the ozone are UVB rays. So UVB rays are more prominent, um, more co- like more common in the summer. Um, UVB rays are less prevalent during the winter, the morning, and the evening. So smaller, smaller problem in general. But UVA rays, the one that do that, the ones that do get through the ozone layer are always present regardless of the time of day. So just because you're outside at night doesn't mean you're not exposed to UVA rays. 
um, which is not something I've thought about before, but it is super true. UVA rays don't cause sunburn. So it's not something that we're mindful of because we know you can't get a sunburn at night, but that doesn't mean that you're still not exposed to um, the ultraviolet light and that radiation. Um, but because we don't feel that have an immediate physical reaction to exposure, it's not something that we're generally thinking about. But you should be because they are still um, rays that have the potential to affect your skin. Yeah. So sunscreen that provides broad spectrum or full spectrum protection protects you from both UVA and UVB rays. And therefore is the kind you should be buying. So what you wanna be looking for at the store is a sunscreen that says full spectrum protection. The, your skin sensitivity to sunlight is known as your photosensitivity. And as I'm sure you know, photosensitivity is based on a number of factors, namely your age, your skin tone, and the season or the climate that you live in. As you age, your skin has a harder time repairing itself after UV damage. So the sunburn that you get as an adult is much worse for you um, in the long term of your life than the sunburn that you might have gotten when you were five. Because when you were five, your skin cells regenerated easier. Um, which means as you get older, it's only more important to protect yourself from the sun. Um, when your skin gets damaged from UV rays, it breaks down the elastin in your skin. And the elastin is what keeps your skin elastic or taut. So the, the destruction of those cells is what causes wrinkles and lines because it's literally destroying um, the, the chemical or the um, component of your skin that pulls your skin tight. Mm -hmm. Which is why you become wrinkly. Um, after lots of years of sun exposure. It, it's important to remember that sun exposure is not just a risk for people who spend the majority of their day outside. Um, the five minute increments of sun exposure that seem incidental right now, like when you walk to the grocery store or um, if you're going out to your car, something like that, those build up over time. And all of those small moments where you are going outside without protection from the sun is proven to cause more damage over your lifetime than a day that you spend at the beach under heavy sunscreen protection. Oh, no. Right? Like, that is what's more likely to affect you. Now, absolutely, if you're going to spend outside all day in the sun, we all, like, this isn't me saying, like, it doesn't matter. What I'm saying is that it always matters, okay? Yeah. This isn't me saying it never matters. I'm saying it <laughs> always does, okay? Yeah. So, please wear your sunscreen every day, particularly if you have fair skin, which, when I say fair skin, like, there's, like, white people and there's, like, white people, you know? <laughs> Like, like my mom is a white person. I am a white, white person. person. <laughs> Kelsey is a white person. You know, like there, we, we all know if you are, trust me, I know my friends who are like, I am pale and the sun is a risk. Like, yeah. <laughs> especially if you're pale and you have light hair, these are the things that will um, draw light towards you. Um, so it is especially important if you are a very pale person um, to be wearing sunscreen every day. Um, people with darker skin have a higher amount of melanocytes, which produces melanin, and melanin helps block UV rays. Um, so it's not just that, like, they're getting a sunburn and we can't see it. Like, no, they have a chemical component in their body that helps protect them from the sun. Um, so that means people with more melanin are less likely to get a sunburn or, and are naturally more protected from UV rays. So 
I I am I'm a I'm still a white person. I still <laughs> can get a yeah. sunburn in all of these days. But I am generally tanner than Jane, so therefore um, I have more natural UV protection. Am I still wearing my sunscreen? Yes, I am. You are. People with fair skin for this reason are more likely to get skin cancer, unfortunately. Um, if so, a good resource um, for understanding the um, ultraviolet exposure in your area is the ultraviolet index, which was created by the National Weather Service to look at your likelihood of sun damage depending on where you live in a given day. Um, they show the risk of UV exposure on a scale of zero, which is the lowest risk, to 11. Um, one way to access this easily, I thought, I thought this website was super um, accessible and easy to understand, is a website called Project Sunscreen. And it will show you your UV index rating for the day based on your current location. So today, I think this is so fascinating. Today, my UV index rating for Manhattan, New York was only 3.5, which is relatively low risk. But mm -hmm. Jane, your UV index rating today was eight. So according to- It was to so cloudy today and rainy. But that doesn't matter because the light is everywhere. <laughs> And that's also because that's when they get you. It's also because you live farther north and the yeah. sun is out for longer where you live. That's also a factor. And just also about like the strength of the sunlight and the overcast, whatever, like it's mm -hmm. incredible. So Jane, you were at a higher risk today of having serious UV exposure than I was. Oh, it is true that UV ratings are generally lower in the winter. However, 80% of the sun's UV rays can still penetrate cloud coverage. So just because it's the winter and it's cold outside, you are still getting the same amount of strength of sunlight. It's just colder, right? That's why it's important to be wearing sunscreen. I literally <laughs> can't emphasize this enough. Like every day, all the time, folks, all the time. Why? How does it work? I'll tell you. Sunscreen combines organic and inorganic active ingredients to protect your skin. And there are two main types of sunscreen. There's physical sunscreen and chemical sunscreen. Physical sunscreen is like the lotion. The best way to describe it is physical sunscreen is that lotion you lather all over yourself. And chemical sunscreen is the one that you spray. Like nine times out of 10. Okay. Physical sunscreen is made of inorganic UV filters that reflect and scatter the sun's rays. So it, it bounces it off of you. Okay. Um, this is like that thick white sunscreen that like you can't really ever rub in. That's physical sunscreen. <laughs> the physical blockers sit on top of the epidermis instead of being absorbed into your skin. And most physical sunscreens are made of either titanium dioxide or zinc oxide. Zinc oxide is the only FDA approved ingredient that protects the skin from both UVA and UVB rays. Now, there are lots of experiments that have shown chemical sunscreens that say they protect from both UVA and UVB, but this is the only one that is FDA approved. So if you think about like vitamins, there are lots of vitamins out there that say like, oh, we do this thing and we do this thing, we do this thing. But there is one particular brand of vitamins and I can't remember what it is off the top of my head. That's the only one that's FDA approved. Mm -hmm. Right? So probably the stuff you want to be using. Here are some positives to physical sunscreen. Physical sunscreens are less likely to irritate the skin. Most physical sunscreens are non-comodic comedogenic, um, which means they're less likely to clog your pores. So 
added bonus, keep the pores clear. Mm -hmm. um, and physical sunscreens reflect the heat, again, because the UV rays bounce off of you, um, which makes physical sunscreen a better choice for people with rosacea and other skin irritations. Some negatives is that physical sunscreen can be quick to rub off because it sits on the top of your epidermis. It doesn't um, get absorbed into your skin. Um, so that's something to be aware of. Um, and also that if you're um, doing activities that involve a lot of perspiration or water contact, you're going to need to apply it more frequently because, again, it can be quicker to rub off. Physical mm -hmm. sunscreens also will leave that white hued residue on the skin. So some people avoid it because it's not aesthetically pleasing, but like, please, I'm telling you, like wear the sunscreen, put on the damn mm -hmm. sunscreen. You look yeah. fine. Um, and physical sunscreens are often thicker and take more effort to rub it. So I remember being a kid and my mom spending like 15 minutes, like trying to get <laughs> the white off the sunscreen. Um, but that's because they're not actually sinking into your skin. That's, that's why. <laughs> <laughs> chemical sunscreens um, contain organic or carbon-based active ingredients that are designed to absorb uv radiation upon contact so they get absorbed into your skin and the sunscreen absorbs the uv rays instead of um, your skin cells chemical sunscreens um, contain organic compounds that catalyze a chemical reaction when exposed to the sun and this reaction transforms uv rays into heat in your body which is then released from your skin so yes, chemical sunscreens will make you hotter because you are still absorbing the heat from the sun. While physical UV filters um, block both UVA and UVB rays, chemical UV filters can only protect against one or the other, which isn't good. You want to be protected from both. The only time it would be okay if you're not protected from both is at the nighttime because UVB rays are less strong at the nighttime, but UV ray, UVA rays are equally strong all of the time. So really you should just use the physical sunscreen because then you're being covered by everything all the time. But some positives to chemical sunscreen are that they do tend to be thinner. So it's easier to spread evenly across the skin. Think the spray, suntan lotion, just like, well, it's done, good. Um, mm -hmm. And chemical sunscreens will rub into the skin which leave less residue. Negatives is that chemical sunscreens must be applied 20 minutes before sun exposure. They are not effective immediately. That is because they need to be absorbed into your skin cells and that's not instantaneous. And when worn directly in UV light, chemical sunscreen protection can be used up more quickly, which means it requires more frequent application. So if you are using the spray sunscreen, you should be spraying it frequently. Often. Yeah. Frequently. So really what I'm saying is that you need to be using physical sunscreen, not chemical sunscreen. Okay. Now, what is SPF? I did not know That's this. A, I, yeah, what is it? <laughs> the, okay, uh, here's what I'm people so, have told ask. me in the past and I don't think it's true. Mm -hmm. uh, they have told me that SPF stands for the number of hours you can be in the sun or the number, maybe it was the number of minutes <laughs> before you get burnt. And that's definitely wrong, right? That's not quite it, although that number does sort of correlate. So SPF is calculated by um, taking the number, um, the number of um, seconds it took for skin to burn with sunscreen and dividing it by the number of seconds it took for skin to burn without sunscreen. So SPF 30 indicates that on skin that normally took 10 seconds to burn without sunscreen, it took 300 seconds with SPF 30, oh. meaning it is 30 times more protective than going outside without sunscreen. That is what that means. So SPF 15 is 15 times more effective than going outside without sunscreen. 
which is why when you have fairer skin, you want to have higher SPF because people who are more likely to burn will have a lower burn time than um, people who are less likely to burn. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. Yes, yes, yes. So if you have fair skin, you want to be wearing at least SPF 30, if not higher, because you want 50 times the protection. Whereas people who have darker skin might only need 15 because 15 times more effective than their normal um, burn time is still a long time. Does that make sense? Yes. You want to think about it as the length of time it's going to take you to burn, depending on your burn time in unsunscreened conditions. Which I learned is not long for me. It's not like, long. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Less than an hour. Um, just for like a, a guideline, um, a, under current Australian regulations, um, sunscreen has to have an SPF of 60 or more to be compliant with their like health department. So think about, I mean, Australia is a country that spends a lot of time in sunlight um, and is very hot and has a, and like desert land, you know? So you know, we have SPF 15 and SPF 30 sunscreen, but in a location where you're going to be outside in the heat in direct sunlight for long periods of day, like think like the Australians, like 60 is probably what you need. Um, <laughs> think of the Australians. Think of the Australians. <laughs> Hopefully that clarifies some things that clarifies yes. some things for you. Now you also asked me about the environmental efficacy of sunscreen um, and sunscreen d does end up in the ocean. Um, because we get in the water with it on. Um, mm -hmm. And it can be harmful to coral reefs and sea creatures. There is no definitive science or answer how to protect yourself and the environment. Um, like this is something that, that scientists are still trying to figure out how we can make sunscreen um, safer for the ocean. Um, but the general recommended course right now is to use sunscreen that does not contain nano zinc oxide. Now, I mentioned earlier that zinc oxide is, a, is an important component in physical sunscreens, and that is true. What you don't want is nano-zinc oxide, which essentially is zinc oxide that's been shrunk down to a nanometer. And that is put mostly in chemical sunscreens. So it's like mm -hmm. literally very, very, very itty-bitty zinc oxide. Okay. So you're avoiding nano zinc oxide, but you want zinc oxide. You want, you know, nano, no yes. nano, no nano, no nano. <laughs> Bad for the environment. Get rid of the no homo part of our society and bring in the no, <laughs> the nano. no nano. Exactly. Exactly. Um, which brings us to a recent news story about sunscreen. Have you heard about this? Um, is it the thing with benzene? Yes. So, yep. A recent report from Valuesure, which is a lab in Connecticut, found high levels of benzene in several sunscreen products. Benzene is a known carcinogen. It is um, a carcinogen that's in tobacco and smoke and lots of lots of natural gases. Like benzene actually is everywhere all the time. Um, mm -hmm. But we try to avoid um, overexposure to it, which you can do by not hanging out in near cigarettes and things like that. There are ways, it, but it's in gas. Don't inhale gas. Like... Mm -hmm. <laughs> Um, yeah. As a, as a safety precaution, actually, I have a story about gas. One time when I was in high school, um, I was at um, 
a build day for a community theater. We were building the set. And because my family had a truck, I got to be the person that made the Home Depot run. But we got <laughs> in the truck. I was with Kelsey. Um, we got in the truck and I realized I didn't have enough gas. So we stopped at Wawa for gas. And as I'm at the Wawa, I thought I heard the gas pump like unlatch, like it does automatically when it's full. So I pulled it out too soon. I got drenched in gas head to toe. Oh it was, no. It was awful. Um, I had to go home. My mom was like, oh my God, you need to shower for like an hour. <laughs> yeah. um, showered very thoroughly. I've, I made it back to the set building like three hours later. A lot of time had passed. I was like, I'm sorry. It was a lot. I didn't want to tell the director because I was embarrassed. It was a whole thing. Um, so yeah, don't douse yourself in gas. There is benzene in there. <laughs> um, so Value Sure discovered um, um, portions of benzene in 78 sunscreen and after sun products. Um, now the official FDA rule is that um, there cannot be more than two parts per million of benzene. And this report included any sunscreens that had any trace of them so they only officially recalled about 40 um, of the products but then they put in an on an unofficial recall for the remaining 38 for having any traces of benzene whatsoever um they had analyzed 294 unique batches from 69 different companies um now benzene is not an ingredient of sunscreen products naturally um, so clearly there was some contamination happening um, because of the um, widespread findings of mm -hmm. benzene. Health experts speculate the chemical may have contaminated these products during the manufacturing process as benzene levels vary between batches of the same product from the same companies. The brands that were impacted by this include Neutrogena, which is a huge one. I've used yeah. Neutrogena before. Sunbum, Banana Boat, CVS Health. Fruit of the Earth, Raw Elements, Sunburnt, Good Sense, and Top Care Every Day. Neutrogena was actually at the top of the list. They had the most products that were contaminated. Um, this also came out just after a report in March, which found benzene in about 40 hand sanitizer products. Oh. Um, and the succession of these two reports caused David Light, who was the founder and CEO of Value Shore, to state, quote, it is unfortunately apparent that benzene contamination is a broad and concerning issue in the American consumer product supply chain. So as you go out and buy your summer sunscreen, um, maybe avoid those products because we don't really know what's going on with that. Um, yeah, look at of, that label. Not, not a lot of closure out. there. I just bought CeraVe sunscreen. Wait, I'm going to go examine it right now. I can see it on yeah. my desk. We'll see if it has all the stuff in it that we want. <laughs> this is about to be an ad or a drag of my sunscreen. <laughs> <laughs> we will find out. Okay. Oh, I have the good stuff. This is the good stuff. Nice. <laughs> I got the two things that we want. So this is physical sunscreen. Um, I know because when I put it on, I am a shade lighter. <laughs> <laughs> I'm significantly lighter. Um, and it contains titanium dioxide and zinc oxide. No nanos. No nano. No nanos. I also didn't wear this in water, so I just sweat it off and it didn't go into any water supplies. So that's good. Um, I... I'm telling you, I get like this. I got like this last summer too. I just, my whole entire being just wants to be poolside. And I'm, I'm lucky. I live in a beautiful place. There's ocean all around me, but it's cold and it's filled with like seaweed and things. And I just, <laughs> I, 
Like I, I just want to be like sitting poolside when I can go swimming anytime I want, but not like a public, like I was talking to my mom about it and she was like, she was like, well, the YMCA has a pool. And I was like, not the vibes I'm going for. Like I want <laughs> to be warm and by a swimmable pool. I just want to be swimming and I want to play mermaids. I love when that. I went to play the beach mermaid. with my parents this weekend, it, we got there and my mom was like, okay, I'm going to go hunting for sea glass. And my dad was like, I'm going to read my book. And I was like, like not expecting them to come swimming and play mermaids with me, but I was like, okay, I guess I'm all alone. <laughs> <laughs> I'll come play mermaids with you. Yay. Um, yeah. So the, the one that I just read, I just, I just read the CeraVe, which was not on the list, um, hydrating sunscreen. Um, and it says on the front, broad spectrum SPF 50. So that means it covers UVA and UVB. Um, SPF 50 means that I will burn, it will take 50 times the amount of time it normally takes for me personally to burn, to begin to burn. Mm -hmm. Um, assuming that it takes 10 seconds of, uh, um, of unexposed. Yeah. Of unprotected, um, exposure. Um, and then it says mineral sunscreen. So that's another word for physical sunscreen is minerals because it's made out of literal minerals. Um, <laughs> literal minerals. Literal we, minerals. How is that not a company that sells like, <laughs> like something natural? Literal oh, yes. minerals. I, I just, I just um, got this water from literal minerals. Bare <laughs> minerals should rebrand as literal minerals. So it would be really funny. Um, so that is my rant about sunscreen. I... I like really can't emphasize this enough, like wear sunscreen. I also like I, I, the moisturizer I use has, has SPF in it. The foundation I use has SPF, SPF in it. I'm not saying it's perfect, but like, it's a process, like protect yourself. This is not a summer specific yeah. thing. Like UVB rays are out all the time. Or UVA rays are out all the time. Okay. We're exposed constantly. It's all a threat. It's all like, <laughs> it's, it's all coming together. Do not let somebody peer pressure you, even your parents. Okay. <laughs> She's talking directly to me. I am. I'm looking at you, Jane. Like, do not let somebody peer pressure you. Like, I would much rather you be pale than be dead. Okay. <laughs> pale is beautiful. Dead is dead. Okay. <laughs> you're right. You're, you're not, right. you're not dying on my watch, bitch. You're not. Okay. okay I will, good. I, Thank I, you. I will, I will show up there and I will lather you in sunscreen. Also, I'm going to do a quick little speech about, um, sun care and tattoos which okay. I wasn't planning on doing but just something to cover um your tattoo is a wound okay and <laughs> it's a wound for about two months after you get it now I have gotten two of my tattoos in the summertime one of them I got in like May and one um when I added on to my tattoo with Jane it was the dead of June yeah <laughs> Um, you need to put sunscreen on your tattoos. A, every time you go out, just like the rest of your body in winter time, I understand that you should always put it on your face. Your face is one of the most vulnerable places. First of all. Um, second of all, if you are going to be outside for long periods of time in the winter, even, even in, under cloud coverage, you still need to put sunscreen on your tattoos. If you are planning on lounging around outside at the very least, because, um, again, you are damaging your sin, your skin cells by exposure to UV rays and those skin cells now have ink in them. So if you look at pictures of older tattoos and they're, and they've bled and the lines have become less clear, that is from sun exposure. Now, yes. Mm -hmm. To a certain extent, sun exposure is unavoidable because your tattoo is for your life. 
right? I have a tattoo on my thigh and I can tell you that the lines are not as sharp as they were four years ago. That is Mm -hmm. fine. That is a natural part of life. If you want your tattoo to look as good as it possibly can for as long as it possibly can, you need to be putting sunscreen on it when it is going to be exposed to UV rays. That is the best thing you can do to protect your tattoo throughout its lifetime. If you are getting a tattoo this summer, you cannot, you need to be aware that you cannot go in a pool or in the ocean for two weeks after you get the tattoo. Your tattoo cannot be submerged in water. You Mm -hmm. need to be putting sunscreen on it all the time. Jane will, Jane remembers that when she got her tattoo, I was lathering that shit up in lotion and sunscreen. Like, oh, she was amazing. She was like the MVP. So, and you need to make sure that if you're getting it in a place that's hard to get to, you have somebody that will put sunscreen on it for you because this is the, the, the first two weeks you have your tattoo, really the first two months is an integral time for that tattoo to take to your skin and sun damage will really mess it up. And the last thing I want any of our listeners to experience is them spending good money on a tattoo that somebody worked really hard on and for it to mm-hmm. be immediately damaged by the sun. Yeah. That is partially why as much as I'm ready for a new tattoo I think I'm gonna wait until the fall just because yes. again I have this instinct of I want to be in the water <laughs> right yeah and it's you can't submerge it you can like literally shower and that's it like yeah that's all you get so this summer I got I've I've gotten two tattoos since last summer um and I'm going to be spending a large part of my summer outside so that is one reason that I got really hi cricket I'm right here my door hey, closed for like two hours oh my god she truly was like hey <laughs> She really does. She like announces herself. She was here I am. Um, I have two new tattoos that are new to me this summer. I will be. Oh, that's a lie. I got three of my tattoos in summer. I got one of them in my one of my arm in August. Um, and that is one of the reasons that I am so lit with sunscreen right now. I've got sunscreen everywhere. Is because um, <laughs> I paid good money for these, and one of them is very thin lines, and I want it to look good for a very very long time of my life. So. That's my spiel on sun care. Um, thank you for coming to my TED talk. <laughs> I just I want, loved I just, it. Thank you. I just want the people to be taken care of. Um, but I'm gonna wrap up now because it's nine o'clock. And um, Hunter I told my brother I'd watch a show with him tonight. So I guess. <laughs> Yeah, got it. We gotta go. We gotta go. Um, okay. Thank you so much for listening. You can find us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at YKWIBW Podcast. You can check out our website, I've been wondering.com. If you like what you're hearing, please consider leaving us a five-star review on iTunes. And finally, if you have something you've been wondering, you can email us at I've been wondering podcast at gmail.com and we would love to put it on our show. Okay. Jane, you know what I've been wondering? What have you been wondering, Sarah? I would like you to tell me about emo culture. <laughs> okay. okay. The, I want to know who the emos are. I want to know them. I want to know more about them. <laughs> That's really it. <laughs> uh, cool. I will look into that. I have been curious about that as well. Um, Sarah, do you know what I've been wondering about? What have you been wondering? That's not the name of the show, Jane. <laughs> what, are, Sarah? Do you know what? Do you know what I've been wondering? What have you been wondering? Or is it just you know? It's you know what I've been wondering. Yeah. Because you can't end a sentence on a proposition. <laughs> what is the story of Krakatoa and Ooh, the yeah. volcano? Yes. I have been seeing so many like uh, thumbnails of YouTube videos like suggested for me being like something about Krakatoa. And I like earlier was like, huh? I feel like the Love only it. thing I think about is like, doesn't SpongeBob go like Krakatoa when he does like a karate move? Yeah, he's doing like an exploding volcano. 
Yeah. Yeah. Yep. So, yep. Um, and related, then Sarah, probably. Yeah. And then totally unrelated to my YouTube experience, Sarah just put in our notes the 1883 eruption of Krakatoa as something we might t- want to talk about. And I'm like, the universe just told me we got to talk about it. So, Sarah, tell me about it. Absolutely. I'm pretty sure it's the deadliest volcano eruption. So, mm. but I love shit like that. I don't love that people died. I love that. I love, I love stuff like that. Cause this is a volcano where they're not like the volcano can't get revenge on the people like the movie volcano that we discussed last <laughs> week. It makes no sense. And the movie twister. And the movie twister. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. We can talk about that. All right. That's what's coming at you next week. Thank you so much for listening. This is, you know what I've been wondering. <laughs>